From Genesis 12. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, You are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Wow. And then after a few decades of trial and rocking with the Lord, we get this passage. Um, This is actually from Hebrews, but it's describing the moment where Abraham is about to sacrifice the one thing that he's longed for his whole life, uh, his son Isaac. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Uh, And secondly, Judah. So Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, father of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, we're going to find out in the first passage here. So one of their other uh, brothers was Joseph, who was sold into slavery. And uh, we're going to find out it was actually Judah's idea to sell his brother into slavery. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And years later, the sons of Jacob are gathered in Egypt begging for grain before the leader of the land who they have not yet realized is actually their brother Joseph. And they've been accused of stealing a cup. And the brothers break down, and we're specifically told it's Judah who says this. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we be clear? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold. We are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that I would find my father. Fast-forwarding to the New Testament. Um, The Apostle John, author of the Gospel of John. Um, Joe, why don't you give us these snippets um, from John's ministry as a disciple of Jesus? And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Way to go, guys. Uh, So a lifetime later, John's brother James has been killed. And John is alone, exiled on a remote Greek island. And writes a number of letters, including these passages. 
I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then finally, Paul, uh, who earlier in his life was known as Saul. Uh, Joe's going to read a passage from the book of Acts. These aren't actually... Paul's words, but it describes a passage where the most beautiful and beloved Christian in the early church is executed, and not really executed, it's more like an act of mob brutality, and, um, and Saul approved of it. Go ahead. Then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Um, And then Saul is converted, renamed Paul. And I have a strong suspicion that the guilt of that moment never entirely left Paul for the rest of his life. Because in his last two letters... Um, we see him still referring to himself as the worst sinner who's ever lived. Would you read that, Richard? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the, uh, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Amen. Thank you, brothers. Go ahead and have a seat. Let me pray for us, and we can chat about these passages. Lord Jesus, I thank you for, um, for being the great shepherd of the sheep. Thank you for calling each and every one of us here into life with you. I pray that you would work through these passages, through my speaking today, through the songs, through communion, Lord, to unite us to you in love that we might trust you more and more as you guide us and lead us and shape us and make us more beautiful in your sight, Lord. um, In this moment, I confess that I don't think there's anything better than to be made beautiful like your son. I pray that you would keep that hope alive in me and all of us, Lord, and that you would do that work, that we might become beautiful like these men became beautiful in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Uh, <clears throat> well, I really love Christmas. It's hard not to love a good celebration. I love Christmas music, and uh, I start listening to Christmas music probably a lot sooner than I should in the year. Um, and for that reason, especially the last few weeks, the last few months, I've listened to Christian radio more than I usually do because they play Christmas songs on the Christian station. Um, a couple weeks ago, we're all in the van, we're driving around the island running one Christmas errand or another, and um, they're playing Christmas songs, and they take a break from playing the Christmas songs, and they interview this Christian musician guy. And uh, as I listened to the interview, well, first of all, I got kind of annoyed because it became increasingly clear that this wasn't really an interview. It was a concert promotion piece kind of masquerading as an interview because the guy's touring right now and so he wants people to go to his shows and so he got on the radio and they're asking him questions about himself and his music um they ask him questions about his experience growing up um as a christian and a christian family with christmas and he just kind of whacks his eloquent about our amazing family times together around the christmas tree and our amazing christmas mornings where all of our families were together and they were always amazing that's a quote by the way And I got so annoyed, I just turned it off. And uh, we had to spend about the next 10 minutes debriefing why I was responding this way. It's one of those situations where you can tell you're responding more emotionally than you should. Um, And I realized what I was responding to was this, this description, this presentation of this sort of idealistic, perfect Christian life where everyone has amazing moments around the Christmas tree and it's always amazing and we have this amazing Christian family and we all love each other and it's just amazing and uh, I've had to repent a little bit because you know what there are really great families out there and uh, it's entirely possible that this guy was just being honest it really is Um, and I the Lord laid that on my heart to make sure that I include that in this so I'm not just doing my cynical Seattle thing But it annoyed me because that touches on my personal story, but also because I've become convinced that uh, for whatever reason in this day and age, particularly in our evangelical Christian subculture, there really is this pressure to present life as that way, whether it is that way or not. And uh, put differently, most of us in this room either uh, became Christians or even worse, grew up Christians and believed one of two closely related things. Either that now that we're a Christian or because I've grown up a Christian, the Lord is going to give me a really amazing life. It's going to be a perfect life because I'm a Christian and the Lord is just going to, he's going to bless me with that. It's going to be awesome. Or, and, and this is different, but I'm telling you, it's closely related. Now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to become perfect. And I'm going to read and study and I'm going to find the right way to do things and, and just the right things to say and the right way to do this and that and the right way to raise my kids. And as a result of that, I'll become perfect. And, and usually what's behind that is, and, and therefore the Lord will be pleased with me and other people will be won over by my life. And there is, there's truth to those things. There, there is truth to those things. You know, when I first got revived as a freshman in college, I, I was more the latter, the I'm going to become perfect. And I started getting up as a freshman in college at 5.30 a.m. every morning to read my Bible. Every day. 
to make sure that I had enough time to read it an hour before class. And that uh, it lasted about two years. And the reading that I did in those two years is paying me benefits today. So there, there, look, there's good stuff to be found there. But the Lord gradually showed me in my life that I was doing all that reading, in part because I wanted to know him, but in part because I thought if I just read the Bible enough, I would do it. And when I did it, my life would be, I, would, I wouldn't have used the word awesome or perfect. I probably would have said good. Then I'd become a good person and live a good life, and the Lord will be pleased with me, and people will be won over to my faith. And there's, there's something in there that's profoundly destructive. Because I can't think of any characters in the Bible who had lives like that. And uh, if you're a thesis person, here's my thesis. That, um, that the Christian life isn't really about receiving perfection or becoming perfect. It's about walking with the Lord. It's about crying out to him on your bed in the middle of the night as it says in the Psalms a bunch of times. It's about waking up and talking to him and talking to him as you fall asleep and walking with him through the awesome joys and the perfect moments and the struggles and the difficult things of life. And through the process of walking with him, becoming not perfect, but beautiful. And um, not, not like Vogue magazine beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Beautiful like Abraham, Judah, John, and Paul, beautiful. Um, I want to take a look at the lives of these four men. Uh, and I'm going to use a couple verses from the book of Second Corinthians. So I guess that's kind of maybe really what I'm preaching from. Um, so if you had a Bible and you wanted to follow along, we're going to take a look at a couple verses in the book of Second Corinthians. There's three things I want to say three things I've kind of pulled out, gelled out of this process of walking with the Lord. And the first one is this. My friends, God is at work. He is at work. This is his job. He's going to work in your life. He's going to take responsibility. He's, he's the one who's going to transform you. You take a look in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. This is, um, if, you, if you're a tattoo sort of person, you've always wanted to tattoo a scripture on your arm, this, this, is, this is one you should choose. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Um, one of the most useful things about studying uh, Greek, particularly in the New Testament languages, is paying attention to tense, because Greek has a lot of them, more than English, actually. So you can say things in Greek you can't say in English. You can say, well, we, we used to do it, but we don't do it anymore. Or we used to do it, we still do it now, we'll probably do it in the future. Or you can say, we haven't started yet, but when we do start it, we'll keep doing it. And any number of other things. So the verb here is the being transformed. And it's two things. One, it's passive. As a force from outside. You're beholding the glory of Jesus... 
And as you behold the glory of Jesus, you are being transformed. It's happening to you. And the other thing is, it's ongoing. It used to happen. It's still happening. It's going to happen tomorrow. You are continuously, as if a force from outside, and actually he says it's the Holy Spirit, you are being transformed into his image. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Um, So most of us here can probably actually worry about our lives a lot less. Especially as it comes to our Christian performance and and life with God. And have we attained to the next level yet? And, And am I doing it just right? No, is the answer to that question, by the way. But that kind of doesn't matter. Um, in fact, to borrow, I've used this before, to borrow one of my favorite phrases from the movie The Matrix, it's the sound of inevitability. <laughs> that when the Lord begins his work, you are not going to get away. And he is going to do it. That um, of our four men here, Judah was born into a Christian household. And that, by the way, constitutes a call. He was born into God's people. And so God called him and worked in his life from the beginning. The other three guys got called, called. As in like God spoke to them. Abraham, go from your land. Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul had to get knocked off his horse. Paul did not take responsibility for his conversion. It was not Paul's idea. It's very dramatic. And it becomes the paradigm for conversion in the New Testament. This, I was actually running the wrong way and Jesus literally knocked me off my horse. And showed me life. And the Lord takes responsibility not just for the beginning, but for the ongoing nature. All four of these guys survived, Christianly speaking. It was rough. It was real rough at times. Like killing other Christians rough. But they made it. That the Lord continued to pursue them all the days of their life as Abraham went to the promised land and then ran away twice and gave his wife away twice and had children with other women, that the Lord kept chasing after him and was faithful to bring about his promise. The Lord kept working in each one of these guys' life. Secondly, we saw that God is at work The second thing is, my friends, the Lord is going to mess with you. The Lord is going to mess with you. He's not going to destroy you. Um, But the things in your life, your your dreams, the things that you care most about, and, and also your greatest weaknesses, and those things are always related, by the way, He's going to work in those areas, not by dismissing them or or crushing them, but in some way by drawing them out over the course of a lifetime. Uh, And sometimes it will be beautiful. Sometimes it will be painful. But it's not a life of perfection, moving from one glory to another. It's, uh, as I've titled this sermon, True Grit. And um, having kind of adopted this perspective of the Christian life. I actually watched the movie True Grit just because of those two words. I wanted to see what a movie about True Grit was about. Because I was like, that sounds very Christian. 
The Lord is going to dig in to the deep, dark places of your life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, this is the Christian life, my friends. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. How honest is that? This guy is the apostle's apostle. He wrote most of the New Testament and was honest enough to share to his supporters that we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we had received the sentence of death. But, listen to this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer. In the Christian life, the Lord draws us, usually repeatedly, through dark, deep, painful seasons. And um, it, it's not, he's not punishing us. It's not, um, I'm very convinced it's not sort of like, ooh, you messed up, this is going to hurt. Uh, and, you know, and some, sometimes, and this, is, this needs to be said, sometimes bad things happen and they're not your fault and the Lord didn't make it happen, okay? Um, you've, had, you've been abused or had tragedy in your life. My friends, that is not the Lord. How do I say this? The Lord did not create that situation. But that's also not to say that he can't work through it. You know that sin and temptation never come from the Lord, but yet he can use all things for good because we live in the in-between time when redemption has come, but sin and yuck is still here, and those things have an effect on us sometimes, sometimes because of our own choices and sometimes not. And either way, he will work through them. I should think of these four men. The one thing that Abraham really wanted out of life was a son. He didn't really care about being a massive nation or having an amazing land. The guy just wanted a son. It's a thing that comes up over and over and over again in his life. And the Lord, in their first speaking, promised him that he would have a son. And 20 years go by before the son is born. But here's, here's what else happens. That Abraham starts life a self-protective, self-focused man who's so nervous about protecting himself, he'll give his wife away to save his own skin. That, by the way, is the antithesis of faith. And that's the man that the Lord took and made the father of the faith. He's the most faithful man who's ever lived. Because the Lord worked with his desire and his self-protective, faithless nature to draw him out through repeated challenges. This is a great read, by the way. If you just want to go home and in one sitting soak in Genesis 12 through 24, I think it'll come across. He gets to the end of his life, and the, the passage about the sacrificing of Isaac is bizarre, but here's what's happening. 
The son is the one thing he's always wanted. And he's tried 17 different ways to get it without the Lord. And the Lord finally provides it. And the Lord says, have you learned to trust me yet? And Abraham, by this point, is so beat up. But he's learned that every time he was faithless, the Lord was still faithful. And he says to himself, this makes no sense. But nothing in my life has ever made any sense except that this God, whoever he is, has been faithful to me. And it's always worked out well. And I don't know what's going to happen. I know that he's able even to raise the dead. But whatever happens, if I follow him, it's going to be okay. That's, that's faith. Abraham is the man. He just didn't start out that way. And it wasn't because of what he did. Judah, having been only a couple generations descended from Abraham, is um, also self-protective and even a little bit more manipulative and conniving. If you read his stories, trying to protect his sons, even though they're all messed up and they all end up getting killed, and he's lying about this and stealing that and cheating about this. It's his idea to sell his son and his brother into slavery. And this passage from Genesis 44 is the most beautiful confession I've ever seen. He says to his brother, How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Look, Judah created his father's pain in the first place. That he went back home with too much money and not enough brothers. And Joseph has created a situation 20, 30, 40 years later where he's sending him back to his father again with too much money and not enough brothers. And Judah's response after a lifetime of God breaking him down, this time is very different. He offers himself as a sacrifice for his brother. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What a great man. Briefly, John and Paul. Um, my read on John and the Gospels, and it took me a long time to realize that James and John, sons of thunder, is actually the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. And um, the guy wants to call down fire from heaven. He wants to sit at Jesus' right hand. This, to me, sounds like it's mostly about status and power. John basically wants status and power. And he actually ends up with a much better status than he could have ever even thought to ask for. He is the apostle that explained to us the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet he's the most humble and loving of the apostles. That the apostle was like, yeah, let's call fire down on those dudes. That would be awesome is the same one who taught us that God is love. He says, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. Which is actually very different than saying, I'm the disciple that Jesus said at his right hand. No, I'm the one that he loved in spite of myself. God is love, and we ought to love one another and confess our sins. And Paul, who's all about perfectionism and the law and doing things just right so that when people don't do them just right, we have them killed because they're a threat becomes the, the apostle of grace, 
Um, I was really thankful that uh, Jonathan Fant was willing to uh, to learn this song that he sang in the offering. I don't know if you caught it. It was written by a friend of mine, and I asked Jonathan if he would perform it for us. The church doesn't have enough songs like this, but this is really awesome. Um, third stanza. Dreams and riches, my ambitions, all have turned to dust. Translation, everything I wanted in my life didn't work out. But your favor lasts forever. This is all I want. Skip the bridge in the next paragraph. You have heard my prayer and groaning. Still my answer waits. I've prayed a lot. You've listened. Nothing's happened yet. But hope in your unfailing love is all that now remains. The Lord draws us through these things, as Paul says, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is what creates. This is how the Lord creates a life walked with him. He's going to take responsibility to make it happen, and this is his goal, just that we would stay close to him. I think he's not uninterested in what we desire. He gave Abraham a son. He gave John status. He gave Judah a family. But he's more interested in drawing us close to him, close to himself. Christian author C.S. Lewis wrote a book from the devil's perspective. Perhaps some of you read it called Screwtape Letters where he imagines what it's like being a devil trying to get Christians away from Christianity. And uh, there's, a, there's a higher up devil mentoring a lower down devil. And uh, the, the Christian that they're focusing on, that they're ministering to, has come through a really tough spot in life. And the younger devil's like, yes, we got him now. And the older, more experienced devil just says, you don't get it. He says... Our cause, being the devil's cause, is never in more danger than when a Christian looks around him at a world in which all traces of God seem to have vanished and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. I think those moments are the most beautiful to the Lord. The final thing I want you to see about uh, a life of true grit, walked with the Lord, is that it will all be worth it. It's so much better. Abraham doesn't just get a son. He gets to be the father of the nations, a blessing to the whole world. Judah gets to be like the most gentle, repentant man who's ever lived. John, the apostle of love. Paul, the apostle of grace. Because these men were saved and the Lord worked in their lives, we're going to meet them in heaven. And having read the story of these men's lives and taken it in and what the Lord did, I cannot wait to sit down. How great would it be just to sit down with Abraham? And kind of chuckle together. I just imagine he'd be like, man, was I messed up. I did not get it. 
But this, this is just so great. It's just so great what God did. You know, just to see a man so soft, so trusting, so beautiful. A man like Judah should be like, yeah, I was totally wrong. I was wrong. But it's so good to be wrong sometimes. We're still loved. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, We do not lose heart. This is uh, 4.16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. He's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. I don't know what that means, but apparently it has some weight to it. Some real weight. And apparently it's glorious. And I don't think this means that we just sort of live life for heaven, that what happens now doesn't matter. I think it actually means knowing that we don't have to have it all now. Knowing that the season we're actually in is the season where the Lord works on us, preparing us for the life ahead, and then it's going to be awesome when we get there, and we'll have moments of awesomeness now. Knowing that the life is the journey. This is actually the one journey you get. You won't grow in heaven. You will. You grow in knowledge. They'll, they'll, they'll be work to do, but it won't be the same as this. You know, the angels actually long to find out about people because we get to experience this, and they don't because we're fallen, and we get to experience what it's like to be loved by Jesus and transformed by him over a lifetime. And when we get to heaven, we will be the exhibits of God's glory on which the angels look and think and say, Man! Can Jesus do some stuff? That's great. He'll be like, yes, it was, it was rough. It was real rough. We despaired of life itself. But it was so worth it. And here we are. We are all in the kingdom. And it has been so worth it. Um, I want to close by telling you about a good friend of mine who I think is living the dream. He's actually younger than me. Um, before going to seminary, I did an internship for two years in college ministry in Nebraska. I was working for RUF. And uh, I met a young college student there named Eric. He actually wasn't even in RUF. He was in the Navigators. Um, he, and he's always kind of like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in the Navigators. I'm like, whatever, whatever. We can still be friends. And uh, Eric is much smarter than me. He's always been smarter than me. Um, loved to discuss and debate theology. He was really growing like a weed. Kind of had an edge to him a little bit. You know, like kind of these like brainiac edge. Um, I'll love you, but also I might mentally wrestle you to the ground kind of guys. Um, but we did become really good friends in my time there. Uh, I left Lincoln, went off to seminary, and was... Uh, actually kind of surprised a year later when Eric also came to seminary. And uh, 
again, he's much smarter than me. He did better in all of his classes than me. You know, great debates in classes. Kind of had an edge to him. Um, he got married, married a girl who's much wiser and gentler and more beautiful than he is, also from Lincoln, Nebraska. So they ended up coming to seminary together. And um, about a year in, they're pregnant. And their first baby is born, I don't remember how many weeks early. But enough weeks early that she spent six to eight weeks in the hospital before she was able to come home. And um, so Eric and his wife, they're getting up early in the morning, driving in the hospital to spend time with their little girl. Eric's trying somehow to get some kind of papers turned in because he's still in seminary and his wife is working, supporting him because he's in seminary. You know, and, uh, and their daughter's in the hospital, and they're spending every waking moment that they can in the hospital with their daughter. And still, night after night after night after night, they have to leave at the end of the night without their daughter. In the middle of this period, I went to go visit Eric at his little apartment to offer comfort to my friend. It's one of those meetings, you know, where you're nervous to go over because you know they need something, and you know that you don't have it. And you're not quite sure what to say or how to comfort them, but you probably should go. I showed up at Eric's house, and his wife made us all tea, and we chatted for about an hour and a half. And by the time I left, I wanted what he had. Because he had become soft. And he had more faith than I have. He knew that it was real hard and real terrible and that God is real good and that no matter what happened, they were all going to be okay. And then I moved here, and a year later, Eric graduated, and you know, the economy's down, and there's not a lot of assistant pastor jobs going around. No one wants to hire a guy out of seminary to be a senior pastor. And so Eric couldn't find a job. And you know what Eric did? He moved back to Lincoln, Nebraska with his wife, and he got a job at Target. He's been working at Target for three years. He's a team lead now. He's still looking for a pastoral position. He hasn't found one. And he is the man. I call him for advice all the time because I don't know of anyone wiser, softer, humbler, gentler. Because he's walked with the Lord and he trusts him. He's a better man than I am. Not many pastors want to, not many churches want to hire target team leads to be their pastors, but they should. Because he's living a great Christian life. And someday someone will figure that out and that church will be awesome. I encourage all of us to, um, to trust the Lord. The Lord is at work. And he's going to come into your life and he's going to mess with stuff. And as much faith as you have, I want you, to the best of your human ability, to let him. Because he probably is already. And most of us are probably wrestling him to the ground. Don't you touch that! Just let go. Just stop. Because he's going to make you into a beautiful person. Let's feed on him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. 